All right, I got to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you. If this is how many of you remember cameras that used this stuff called film? Anybody remember film, camera film? All right, all right. And uh, you, you know there was Fuji film that came later, but the first film that was almost everybody used was Kodak, right? Kodak film, the yellow box, and they even had they could turn a box of film into a camera. Even it felt like you know just. And they would, you know, you'd go to a, a tourist attraction. They'd have the Kodak photo booth, and they had the Kodak photo place to take a picture. And Kodak, everything was it related to pictures. Well, Kodak went bankrupt because they didn't make the transition from film to digital. Right? We we have digital cameras. They're called phones. Uh, there's also nicer um, digital cameras that don't use film, and you don't see Kodak cameras. You didn't see many before, but you did see some. But here's what you might not know. Kodak developed digital photography. Yeah. But they didn't embrace it. They didn't see it for what it is, new as opposed to old. And what Jesus is doing in Matthew is he's helping those who are entrenched in the old recognize that something new has come that's better than the old. Okay, not better like the iPhone 14 is better than the iPhone 12 better. Like the phone is better than two tin cans and a wire. No, even better difference than that, right? Because we're talking about the difference between trying to save your own life as opposed to your creator saving your life, right? The old covenant was to point to something better, the new covenant. And Jesus is all about the new covenant. The religious leaders were so entrenched, they couldn't see it. They didn't have eyes to see. They didn't have ears to hear. They were blind and deaf spiritually. And Jesus is going to drive this point home in the rest of chapter 12 as we look at Matthew 12 today. And he's going to continue to really just flesh out the implications of really the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and all that he's been building on in this very straightforward teaching of this is about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not you lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. Just do better. Yes, we can. It's not that at all spiritually. It's I can't do it except that he's done it. And I can rest in what has been done instead of me trying to make it happen. So we're going to pick up in verse 38, and we'll go to the end, and we're going to see some more portraits of Jesus. Okay, Um, Remember that Matthew is giving us a lot of different views of Jesus. Now, why is he doing this? Jesus is doing this because it's super important that we see Jesus for who he is, for who he is truly, that we might become who he is fully, that we might be like Jesus, that we might reflect that. But I think we are so caught up in doing it right that we don't realize that the effort required is not to earn. The effort required is just to engage the grace that is available to us. Okay? So maybe um, we should let Jesus tell us about this. He can do it a whole lot better. Now he's going to give us a a picture. We've already seen in 
in past weeks that Jesus is the better, well, he, he said, I'm the better temple, which points, points to him as being the priest, Jesus' priest. But he's also prophet. And we're going to see here in this sign that he's a better prophet. Matthew writes, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, they're not asking for a miracle. Why aren't they asking for a miracle? Because they've already had miracles performed right in front of them, some of them at their urging. And they never once said that wasn't a real miracle. Not one time in Scripture did they see a miracle and go, that's a fake. Because why? Because they were legit miracles. I mean, we've got people who are blind being able to see, people who are paralyzed being able to walk, the deaf can hear, the mute can speak, demons run. We see somebody who has the power over life and death. He can raise the dead. You say, well, that's impressive. Not enough for the Pharisees. They wanted a sign. They wanted something like the stars align and say, Jesus saves. Look, connect the dots. Jesus not like a sign like Jesus on a piece of toast. I can see it burnt just right. It's you know, something that you cannot explain apart from God doing the work. Now, Jesus isn't happy about their request. Look at how he responds. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Why would he say that? I mean, you would think it would be you know, at least they're asking, but of course we know, and he knows, their hearts are not to really get at the truth. You've had this happen before, right? People will ask you questions or confront you or say things to you, and they don't really want to know the answers, right? They, they've got an agenda. There's something that's behind that, that they're trying to, to move forward, and this is just a, a, a thinly veiled dis, disguise of what's really happening, and, and Jesus sees right through it. And he says, but none will be given it. That is, there will be no sign given to this wicked, evil generation except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, of the minor prophets, Jonah is like the top because everybody likes to talk about the guy who was swallowed by a big fish. I mean, that's memorable, right? It's so crazy and out there that people want to say the book of Jonah is just a fable, right? But Jesus refers to Jonah here as a historical figure. Note this. Whenever Jesus refers to people in the Old Testament, he always refers to them as people in history. He doesn't refer to them as legends or myths or um, allegory. He says, these are people who lived in history and God worked then too. So, you know, be, be encouraged that the Bible is trustworthy. He says, none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. Now, um, this summer, I think it was a summer, uh, we went to visit um, uh, Kelsey and Ethan in Atlanta, and we went to the aquarium. I've never been to the Georgia Aquarium. It's impressive. I highly recommend you go see it. One of my favorite, well, it was my favorite thing in the whole aquarium is the whale shark, okay? Now, for those of you that don't remember seventh grade life science, whales are not fish, Fish are not whales, okay, but they can both be really big. The whale shark sounds like a confused mammal, doesn't it, right? So the whale shark is a fish, and it is big, and they have a few there. They're just massive creatures and beautiful, uh, graceful creatures. So, um, But in case you were wondering, could a man really be swallowed by a fish? If you, 
you like to Google things, Google up some stories back in the days of 1600s, 1700s, I don't know, back in the days of, of England, and they have stories of men being pulled out from inside fish. So, um, you know, it happens apparently more than once. But in the story of Jonah, we have basically this. We have a prophet of Israel, and what does a prophet do? He foretells and foretells. So he tells the truth about the present, and he tells the truth about the future. And prophets would always talk to people and say and point to them back to what is just and right and good and call people out and when they're not doing that and to point people to, to God to trust and follow him. And so God tells Jonah, I want you to go do all those things you normally do for our people in Israel. I want you to go do that for the people in Nineveh. Now, that seems pretty legit to us until we realized that Jonah was not happy about that because those were his arch enemies. Those were the arch enemies of, of Israel. And so he was so anti-Ninevite, okay? And if you're having trouble connecting with that, think Iraq. Think Iran, that region. That's the people we're talking about, okay? So we can kind of think about enemies because some of us still are there, okay? Even though God created them in the image of God too, Okay? Um, but Jonah wasn't there, and so Jonah got a one-way ticket to the other direction on a ship. Long story short, he, can, he realizes that God sends the storm, and they're all about to die, and he tells the sailors, if you want the storm to stop, just throw me overboard. And they even try to do everything, and finally they just say, okay, we're throwing him overboard because we're going to die. And the, the storm immediately stops, and Jonah is swallowed by a giant fish, and he's gone. So he's as good as dead. That's the picture from the view of the sailors. That's the picture that we see when we read the book of Jonah. But he's not because three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, somehow he's able to survive until the fish has a Rolaids moment and throws him up on the shore and he survives. He, he comes back essentially from the dead. And Jesus says, that is a picture. That's a sign for you. Now, they don't know what it's a sign of, and they, don't, they can't figure it out because it's a sign of something that hasn't happened yet. But like a good prophet, he's telling the future because Jesus is the better prophet, and it is three days and three nights, right? It's in the tomb. Jesus will die on the cross, be buried for three days, and rise from the grave. Okay? Now, if you're a little confused with the, the timing and the calendaring, basically Jews see a part of a day as a full day. They treat it as a full day. So we might say two and a half days. They would just say three days, okay? Um, and so for whatever reason, Jonah and Jesus just want to say three days and three nights, okay? I don't think there's a significance beyond that. There's a lot of, if you want to do some extra reading, there's some homework for you. You can investigate. But Jonah is in there, and so it, Jesus is basically saying the sign, the only sign that you're going to get that's going to be big enough to work for you, and oh, by the way, it won't even work for you. That is me rising from the dead after you kill me. And, and that's the sign that we have today, and that's the sign if people are looking for a miracle that's going to change their life, that's the miracle. Someone died and rose from the dead and will never die again. It's not just raised from the dead and die again. It's will never die again. And that's the hope that a Christian has that truly believes and follows the Lord Jesus is that we won't die and be in the grave forever, that we will rise as well. And we won't be some ethereal spirit, that we will live in a physical, real eternity called the new heaven and the new earth. 
And that is the hope that we rest in. And that is why you can go to a funeral and cry because of the short-term loss and, and yet be joyful in the long-term win. And that's a hard thing to feel and experience, but that's true. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay? And you have to decide whether you believe that or not. That's, that's some, I can't decide that for you. And I probably can't convince you of it. But that's why he gives us the sign of the resurrection. And if you want to say, well, then I guess I need to decide whether the resurrection really happened or not. There's a lot of great reading material that can help you see it, but the scriptures are enough. Okay? He literally rose from the dead. Okay, but he continues. Jesus says, Here's his, this is the condemnation he's going to speak over these religious leaders. Um, verse 41. The men of Nineveh, or you could say the Ninevites, will stand up at the judgment, because Jesus is coming back, and that's when the judgment day of judgment will be. They will stand up at the judgment with this generation, these men that he's talking to, and they're basically the people of the world, and condemn it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want God's condemnation, right? I need his mercy. I don't deserve it, but man, I'm going to ask for it. And here's why. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here, meaning the greater prophet, meaning himself. And then he switches to the third. So we've talked about priest, that was in the past, prophet here, but also king. Now we have the better king. The queen of the south, also known as the queen of Sheba, she would have been from Africa, probably some say Ethiopia. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So they're going to be condemned by the Ninevites, and now they're going to be condemned by the queen of Sheba. Here's why. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. This is King Solomon, son of King David, who asked of all the things he could ask for. He asked for wisdom. God granted him wisdom and then a whole lot more. And he was the most, the greatest, wisest man to, or woman to walk the earth until Jesus Now something greater than Solomon is here. Again, Jesus referring to himself. Let's stop there. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving you two pictures of myself, two portraits. I'm the greater prophet. I'm the greater king. King meaning shepherd king who rules wisely, a wise and humble ruler. Prophet who tells the truth about the present and the future. Okay? So what? Why does this matter? Because you and I are spiritually bankrupt. Kodak went bankrupt financially because they lived in the past in something that is dead. They didn't embrace the new. We have the new covenant through Jesus. And if we stay in the old, then we're spiritually bankrupt. And you go, well, I don't have a problem. I'm not a Jew. I don't do the Old Testament stuff, right? And it's like, well, you know what? This category is bigger than that. This category can include any religion. It can even include Christian religion. And let me explain what I mean when I say that. When I say Christian, there are Christian religions that are not Christ-like. There are Christian religions that exist that do not, co- they do not align with the New Testament. Okay? And their sermons are things like, you just need to do better. You just need to try harder. It's all on you. Come on. You can do this. Basically what the Pharisees were telling all the people in that day, just follow the rules, follow the law, and you'll be fine. Basically, you can earn your own salvation, but you can't. 
That's why we need Jesus. If you can be good enough, then you don't need Jesus. And his death was a waste. But that's not why he came. He came because we can't get ourselves out of the sin and death, shame and guilt we experience. And so he's saying it now. He's going to say it in another way in these next few verses because these verses are a little weird. But I think in context you'll see where they fit, verses 43 through 45, because it feels like this comes out of left field. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person, notice he didn't say house, is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So he's using imagery here. The house represents a person. The demon is possessing a person. And for some reason, the demon leaves. And the reason that seems to be implied here is that this person cleans themselves up. They get themselves cleaned up before God. They start following the rules. New Year's resolutions. I'm going to discipline myself. Right? You, you know, there's, there's lots of people who are big on discipline, and, and, and it's all about, you know, if I'm just disciplined, then I'll be all that I need to be. Okay? And, and, you know, you can fill in the blank. There's a lot of different self-reformation kinds of things. Jesus did not call us to, ref, to be reformed in any flavor of, when I say reformed, in, in our character, in the way that we live. Because that's me doing it. Right? He doesn't want us to reform ourselves. He wants us to repent of living a life that is unreformable. He's calling us not to reject, which is what the Pharisees were doing, or reform yourself. He's calling you to repent. He's calling me to repent. And and before you get a little too comfortable going, yep, they sure need to, I need you to realize that I'm not just talking about the first time that we repent and believe and become a follower of Christ. I'm talking about every time we sin, God brings it to mind and we repent and believe. That's how we get back on track. The process of sanctification requires repentance and faith. Okay? That it is all about repentance and faith. That's the process that Jesus calls us to. And so when he says an impure spirit comes out of that person, okay? What happens if that person reforms themselves is eventually they give in to the same carnal nature, the same fleshly desires that they had before, and they're overwhelmed because more come back and the end result is you're actually more wicked than you were. Some of you can think, you probably know people who are very religious, and they are some of the meanest people you know. I've heard people say, some of the meanest people I know are Christians. Well, they may or may not be true Christians, or they may just be this, reformed. And I don't mean that theologically when I say reformed, okay? That's another whole controversy we're not even going to touch today, right? I'm talking about this idea of reforming yourself. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And then he says to them, that is how it will be for this wicked generation. He's talking to the Pharisees who are leading the people, and most of the people are following them in this drudgery of Old Testament religion. 
Okay? It doesn't mean there's not value in the Old Testament. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean there aren't truths in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. It's in my Bible, too. I read it, too, every year. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when you live the Old Testament way, the Old Covenant way, which is obey the law, then what you're saying is, I'm not going to rest in what Jesus did for me. I'm going to do it myself. And you can try that, and if you can do that perfectly, then you'll be okay. If you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself, perfectly, 24-7, all your life, you're off to a good start. And then there's the other 364 laws that are there and rules that are there and things that are not just what am I doing outwardly in, in my behaviors, but what am I doing in my heart attitudes? What things am I not doing that I should be doing? Am I sharing my faith or am I committing the sin of silence? Do people even know I'm a believer or am I a closet Christian? What kind of life are we living? So, so he, he says basically ref, don't ref, try to reform yourself by just earning by doing good things. Then he ends with this little, this little end piece that I think really ties it up really nicely. And we touched on this on Thanksgiving, so I'm not going to say much, but I just wanted to, uh, let me read it, and then, and then you'll see where it fits. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him, and someone told him, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to, the, and he, he, Jesus, replied to um, the someone who is my mother and who are my brothers? He asks a, a question that he intends to answer. And then he points to his disciples, which include the 12, but also include others that are there that follow. And we know from reading in other places in Scripture, there were women there too, some who supported his ministry financially. And he says, Forever, I'm sorry, he says, here are my mother and my brothers, pointing to those people. And then he says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying? There's family and then there's family. You've heard blood is thicker than water. Well, the spirit is thicker than blood. Okay, the living water of the spirit of the living God is thicker than blood. Okay, and we all know people who are very, very tight with their family which is a really good thing as long as it's not more important than your family of God. Okay? Because if you have your family above God, then you have your family in a place of where, that God deserves to be, and you are worshiping an idol called family. And it may be noble, and it may be good in, it, in and of itself, but it is, it is idolatry. It is sinful. It is wrong. Because you're missing the bigger picture. You're worshiping the creation instead of the creator of that creation. God created family. And he's saying that it takes relationship for you and I to truly live, to truly be who God created us to be. And we can't reform ourselves and become good enough. We can't clean ourselves up. And, and we can't just follow rules and and whatever rules they are, whether they're Christian rules or Jewish rules or Hindu rules or Muslim rules, it doesn't matter. There are no rules that you and I can follow and be good and become good enough by following those rules. God says you can't do anything that will save you. You need to be saved and rescued 
Okay, it's kind of like when you think of, um, I think they train, now I've not been trained to be a lifeguard, but I've heard that lifeguards are told, among other things, please correct me if I'm wrong, that if somebody is thrashing in the water, that you don't just swim up to them and try to help them out because they're going to drown you because they're panicking and they're not thinking and they're just desperate to not drown. And I think something along the lines of you kind of let them get to the point where they're almost drowning and then you can help them because they have not willingly, but they've just surrendered in a sense. They've given up because there's, they can't save themselves. They finally come to that place. They come to the end of themselves. That's spiritually where you and I need to be. We need to be at the end of ourselves and realize I can't, I cannot be, I cannot be right with God by thrashing around and making it happen. I need to surrender. And when you surrender, you put your hands in the air, right, with your open hands in the air, signifying, I have no weapons, I have nothing in my hand that can prevent me from being given over to your control. And your captives, whoever you're surrendering to, they now have control and they tell you what to do and where to go. And if your captive is an enemy, then that's a scary place to be. But if your captive is actually your rescuer, there's no better place to be especially when he is able to give you everything you need and no one else is. So you see where the, this family of God is, is here and the relationship. So, you know, this is why relationship trumps religion. Okay, that's why that happens. Okay? I know you probably have heard this. Okay? It's not news, not new information, but it, it, this is the... This is why the prophets kept repeating themselves because we hear truth and we've gotten really good at deflecting it and, and we don't respond to it. We just kind of go through the motions and, and, and just keep doing what we're doing and it's like God can't break through because we won't let him, okay? If you believe that God is trustworthy, then embrace whatever it is he's putting in your heart right now. Embrace whatever he's putting in your mind right now. Because he's good and he's trustworthy. But that's between you and him. You've got to believe and receive. No one can do that for you. No one can do that for me. I have to do that. We have to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come before you totally bankrupt apart from your grace and mercy. Whether we believe it or not, we have nothing to offer you of value. except ourselves. We are valued by you because we are made in your image. You created us on purpose for a purpose. And so, Lord, as we surrender, well, I don't want to presume, Lord, but for those who are ready to, I pray that as we surrender our lives to you, maybe for the first time, that we would do so believing that you are good, that you are great, and therefore that you are trustworthy. Give us the courage to humbly submit to your will, which is evidence that we are in your family because we do the will of our Heavenly Father when we are family. We even pray it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, help us to embrace all that you bring to us through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. Yes, there's effort involved but it's not an earning. 
or striving. It's a resting in the truth of what you have already done through the cross and the resurrection. May we have the courage to believe and receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.